everyone, and welcome back to season three of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we, I mean, I've got a new co-host and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for season three to be a consistent voice and having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcast look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Welcome everybody to Everyday Theology. Super excited about this guest. I was really excited because Chris had mentioned to me bringing this guest on and while I've engaged with some work, didn't really have any other connections with them other than Chris. And so I jumped at it and said, yes, let's absolutely do it. So today we're going to have a, a great conversation with Brad Jersak and it's going to go into some different places and kind of maybe wander a bit, but I think we're going to have some good wanderings here. But Chris, why don't you introduce Brad for our guests? Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Brad, for being with us. Everyone, this is Brad Jerzak, who is, I think I can say, a dear friend and a friend uh, I've really enjoyed at a distance before I met you. I drew on your work. I'll say more about that in a, in a bit and and liked you from the first. But the more I've gotten to know you, the more it's moved from liking you to, re- to really respecting the kind of person that you are and that your wife, Eden, is. So thank you. Thank you for being with us today. For those who don't know Brad, and I'll give Brad a chance in a moment to say a bit about his life and his story. Brad is dean at St. Stephen's Seminary, the dean of theology and culture. He's the author, most recently, of a book on scripture, which we'll discuss today, a more Christ-like word, but he's also written about God and about heaven and hell and salvation. The first book, the the one that kind of launched him into fame within these circles, was a book about hearing God, which grew out of his past in charismatic Christianity. We'll talk some about that as well. For our Pentecostal listeners, you'll hear a lot of 
the ways in which Brad's story is rooted in the, in that experience. But over time, Brad was drawn to the Orthodox tradition. And that, I, I think, um, anyone who knows his work now knows deeply shapes not only what he talks about, but how he talks about it. So I, I think that's a, a pretty general overview of kind of what you do. But tell us a little bit more, Brad, about kind of who you are. What's your story? What would you want listeners who don't know you already, don't know your work already? What would they need to know first? Yeah, maybe it would help um, to know some of my trajectory. I also want to say that the affection we have is entirely mutual. And I'm always in awe of Chris and really grateful to meet Aaron. So um, I did grow up in a, a, an evangelical Baptist church that was not very open to charismata, although my parents were. And in fact, my Baptist uncle had left the Baptist church to plant a Pentecostal church when he encountered the Holy Spirit and needed the space to do that. Um, I ended up pastoring for 20 years. My wife, Eden, and I were part of, first of all, her home church, which was a Mennonite or Anabaptist church. Hmm. And then after 10 years there, we planted a church that we thought would be this rip, roar, and renewal church um, with all the signs and wonders stuff. But what ended up happening is it shifted sort of from charismatic to contemplative and featured mainly people with disabilities and people hmm. with addictions, people on the margins. Yeah. And so I, I just uh, thoroughly enjoyed that, although it did end tragically for me. Uh, Ten years in, I, I just faced such a series of tragedies with the kind of people that we're talking about in terms of deaths, overdoses, um, suicide, a murder, an abduction, that kind of stuff. And it just kept escalating until I had to quit. I'm like, I don't know if I trust God anymore. So at that point, the church actually asked my wife to take it on. And she was the most wonderful mom to those folks for the next five years. Well, I went and hid in PhD studies. And that's, that was my chance to get to to dive deeply into um, some of these hard questions around the nature of God, the goodness of God, how suffering fits into that and all of that. And also, um, around that time, I started really coming under the tutelage of a local monk named Archbishop Lazar. And <clears throat> he, he uh, really mentored me and did a lot of soul care, but also introduced me to a more intensely merciful God. And at least uh, his interpretation of the early church fathers was very hopeful, very merciful, and very beautiful to me. And mm. By the time I I finished my studies, um, I entered the Orthodox Church, and I also then shifted over into the academic world as a lecturer, New Testament, theology, philosophy. And as Chris said, I'm now with with, with a modular grad studies program at St. Stephen's University, and we also have an online peace studies certificate as part of that, if people are interested. That's at irpj.org. Uh, other than that, we are enjoying the reset, which is COVID. <laughs> um, and part of that joy is I, I am a bit of an introvert. So I needed I needed 33 flights to be canceled last year. And oh, my gosh. Overcoming my jet lag and thinking about a new way to live, the center of which is my new grandson, Felix. And so that's, uh, that's where I'm at these days. It might be good for... Uh introverts like yourself but 
Oh, extroverts like me. This has been rough. And still, it's kind of rough. Yeah. Well, I'll be praying for you. Thanks. Thanks. I was hoping we were coming out of it, but unfortunately, it seems like finishing my office is a needed thing here soon. For anyone who can't see the video, it's still, you know. Well, we are learning the Greek alphabet one letter at a time. We're up to lambda now, right? And so we'll just see if we get to omega on this one with these variants. But I really feel for you, Aaron. And uh, But I uh, it, it has been a different experience for some of us. And I'm grateful for that while also grieving for folks like you. Yeah. Chris, I know you've got wonderful questions to ask. I'm going to let you ask the first one before I dive into the maybe more savory for some the questions that that if you uh if you haven't heard of brad's work you might have heard of some of the the work on universal reconciliation and i'm not even using the right term here but i'll let brad do that but we'll we'll save that for later and chris yeah i want you to take take over from here yeah so let's let's start just a, a quick reflection on the latest book and how that relates, you know, the latest book, as I mentioned already, is about scripture and specifically about scripture as a word that is fitted to the word, a word that is like the character of God revealed in, in Jesus. And as the as I mentioned, the, the title is a more Christ-like word. And the subtitle, which I didn't mention before, reading scripture the Emmaus way. So let's start. Give us a, a short overview of what you're doing in that book, and then I want to ask you to kind of trace a bit of the genealogy from that first book about hearing God to this latest one. But I, I see a connection there in lots of ways. One, they're both about the Word of God, right? And they're both about the ways in which we hear God. One of them explicitly charismatic, and one of them explicitly biblical, but I, I think pretty clearly related. So I'd like to hear you tease that out. But first, just give us a sense of what were you doing in this book or what was happening to you as you wrote? Yeah. The book? So in this book, um, uh, what was I, what I was doing is I, I start with this cheeky little statement that I believe the word of God is inspired, inerrant and infallible. And when he was about 18, he grew a beard. In other words, uh, the statement I'm making is that um, I grew up hearing that the Bible is the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E, B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And uh, and and so um, when you would say the word, the word, even a more Christ-like word, the assumption is I'm talking about the Bible. And what I'm wanting to say is that actually uh, – Jesus Christ is our final authority for faith and practice. And the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, testifies that this one, crucified and risen, is the word of God. He's the final word about who God is. And that, uh, um, so I prefer to, to refer to Jesus as the word of God. And I like to think of the scriptures as a faithful witness to that word. This then raises a problem. When we develop the idea that God is revealed perfectly in Jesus. We have to wonder about images of God that are at times in the scriptures, fairly unchristlike. How will we do that? How do we interpret these scriptures in a way that doesn't throw the very character of God under the bus mm -hmm. and, and paint him as a genocidal monster? And yet 
when we see those kind of texts, what will we do with them other than throwing them under the bus? And so uh, my belief is that it's not a Jesus problem, a God problem, or a Bible problem. It's a it's an interpretation problem. Right. And so my, my solution to that problem is uh, not to go out on the thin end of the branch, which is, I don't know, say liberalism or progressivism, but it's to crawl down the trunk to the very roots of the tree and ask, how does Jesus interpret the Old Testament? How does how do the apostles um, come to that text? What does the early church think is a faithful way of reading? So um, the centerpiece of that is that on the road to Emmaus, on Easter afternoon, Jesus speaks to two of his disciples. And on that road, he opens the scriptures to, the, to them. And he says, you know, he shows them how Moses... The prophets, later in the chapter, also the Psalms, and all the scriptures testify concerning his passion, his death and resurrection, that they are pointing to him, that the entire uh, redemptive saga, which is the, the Bible, has a climax in this person, and that the whole thing comes together sort of like uh, prefiguring his suffering and his entering into his glory. And so now we go back into those scriptures with Christ. And mm. I believe a faithful reading is he shows us how they were pointing to him in the first place from at least Genesis 3.15, but all the way through. So that's a synopsis of what, I, what I'm doing in that book. And I'm hoping that it both preserves scripture for those who are tempted to throw it out, and it also gives us a fresh way of reading it that will indeed reveal a Christ-like God rather than some sort of strange um, uh, hybrid of Zeus and Yahweh and Jesus. Right. <laughs> one of the now, things. Brad, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, I just want to kind of pause there for a second because I can imagine a world in which what you just said. I don't know too many Christians who would go. Yeah, that's what I do. That's that's what I understand, but then I go on to Facebook and see a timeline, and that's definitely not what's understood, right? So yeah. maybe tease out for our listeners, kind of based on what you've just kind of shared in your understanding of Scripture and the Word of God as as the Christ, right? How yeah. is this different than what we maybe just typically see in evangelicalism today? Okay, so. I would say the typical evangelicalism that I was initially raised in and trained in, including at the college and master's level, did focus on what we called a, a particular hermeneutic. It, hermeneutic just means an interpretive system. We called it the literal, grammatical, historical approach. Or There's other terms for it like that. But what it did was it, it, we wanted to say that the whole Bible it faithfully reveals the nature of God and his purposes and ways in this world. The problem with that is we would come to those Old Testament texts without reference to their punchline in Jesus, and we would try to read them on their own terms and quite often did so literally. Hmm. And, what, what I, and I don't have a problem with a literal reading if that meant we read the scriptures according to their historical context, according to the grammatical features, uh, the right. idioms that are used, but and and also even in the context of 
what we think, um, you know, might be their history. But so we would enter passages like First Samuel 15, and we would see uh, the narrator saying to Samuel, go command Saul to commit genocide, including the slaughter of every baby and show no mercy. Hmm. And so a literal reading of that without reference to Jesus is very problematic. What are you going to do with that? Well, I can tell you what we did with it. Oliver Cromwell quotes those kind of uh, texts in his Puritan genocide of the Catholics in the UK. I mean, as a Christian, supposedly. So so I'm coming to it and and I'm saying, no, um, you've only just begun, begun to open the scriptures. It's like the orange peel when you are looking at the words, the grammar, the history and the genre. We have more work to do. And so I look at how in the ancient in the ancient world, and I see this modeled in Jesus, modeled in Paul, modeled in John, and then made explicit in people like Melito of Sardis, Irenaeus of Lyon, and Origen, that we move past literalism into uh, into a moral reading that shapes a Christ-like life, and then a spiritual reading which makes explicit how any given passage points to Jesus. And if it doesn't, if it reveals an unchristlike God, then that's a cautionary tale because we keep making the same mistakes. So I don't throw 1 Samuel 15 out of my Bible. I, I hold it up as a mirror. And as Archbishop Lazar says, it's like this, this chapter is about you. It's not revealing yeah. God. Yeah. It's revealing how we just did the same thing in Iraq, Afghanistan, and across the world. You know, we attach right. the name of Jesus to our own aggression and, and bigotry. And, and isn't that interesting that it's already prefigured there? But, but Jesus comes and he says, well, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. And then he shows us the Jesus way. Right. Doesn't that make it so much harder? <laughs> I mean, how many Christians don't like that interpretation? Because all of a sudden now it actually points the finger back at us rather than pointing the finger at someone else. Yeah, and, that, and that means we're no longer undergoing the word of the Lord through those texts. We're standing right. over it like like people with scalpels who are going to dissect it for our best uses. Yeah, instead of seeing uh, the finger of God saying this this story was about you. You need to repent and follow my son. Yeah, yeah. Say a word, a quick word about. Kind of who who this was written to. I mean, obviously, when you write, you never know who's going to pick it up, who's going to read it, and how it's going to be heard. But it does seem that I've heard, and I've heard you talk about this elsewhere, so I'm cheating in that sense. But I think even if I hadn't heard you talk, if I just picked up the book, I think I would pick up really quickly the sense that you you have a heart for people who have been burned by ways of reading that that led to disillusionment that that led to some kind of deconstruction so say a little bit about you know kind of who you're speaking to right when you're when you're talking about reading scripture in this way yeah i would love to i because i regard the scriptures more highly now than i ever have in being a faithful witness to the good news of christ um i had I had that in mind about how the scriptures have been used as, as to clobber people, to abuse people, oppress people in a very real way. And those who are cynical yeah. about it, 
I, I must say, um, it's even worse than you think. So um, out of that, I have two target groups for this book. On the one hand, I want to address people who are still committed to using the scriptures in their faith practice so that they won't clobber people with them, so that they, they won't, that, that it won't be um, a means of abuse for those they're preaching to, for example. And I would love yeah. pastors to read this or teachers to read this um, who, who clearly still intend to use the Bible. I'm like, then I want you to use it the Emmaus way because that's, that's going to heal people and liberate them instead of harm them. Right. The other group are those, especially uh, among my progressive friends who are just so done with it. And they're like, I can no longer read this book. It is so toxic to me that even opening it triggers me. And I'm gonna, I've taken a break from it. In fact, we won't allow a Bible in our house. I'm like, well, huh. um, when you're done sort of the detox, hopefully you'll be open to rehabilitation where I show you a way in which this book is truly genius and beautiful. And I want to retrieve it for those churches where they're for the sake of, let's say, um, advocacy or justice work and so on. They think it's actually necessary to set it aside. I'm like, oh, no, this is the story of a people who were oppressed in slavery and then in exile and then under occupation. And out right. of that emerged this incredible light. And what if that could happen again? And so that's sort of the, 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 the whether you've used it for harm or been harmed by it, I just feel like there's a Jesus way to read this book that is right. going to open your hearts to some, something good. Yeah, that's beautiful, Brad. Thank you for that. Talk a bit about how this relates to that first book. As I said, you know, you're, I'm fascinated by the ways in which you made that move. I, I don't know that there are any conflicts, but there are shifts. And how would you narrate that move from, can you hear me, prayer as listening to the voice of the living God, to reading the Emmaus Way as you talk about it? Yeah, I think there there is mainly continuity in there. So in 2003, I came out with this book called Can You Hear Me? Tuning Into the God Who Speaks. And, I, and the agenda in that book was to say, yes, we hear God's voice through the scriptures, but also the scriptures themselves lay out an, a whole array of relating to God as a living friend who lives, who's inside of you. And so um, that is that has affinities with both sort of Pentecostal tradition, the charismatic movement, but also the contemplative tradition, all of which are saying, you know, when we, when we come to the scriptures, they tell us that Jesus said to his disciples, I have so much more to tell you. This is like the night he's going to be arrested. I have so much more to tell you more than you can now bear. Too bad. <laughs> ah, he has a solution, though. He says, but, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, maybe at one level, he's talking to 11 disciples about how the spirit will guide them into the truth they reveal in the scriptures. But when John includes that promise in his book, it anticipates the, the, uh, indwelling work of the spirit by which we continue to hear the voice of Christ. And that's what makes it a personal relationship. You know, right. you don't just 
pray a prayer and then compose prayers you say at the ceiling and then go read a book. That's not, I mean, that's close. I guess that's like love letters between me and my wife when we were distant. But um, he's talking about something much, much more imminent. And so the spirit who's in you uh, um, opens our ears to the voice of Christ who continues to speak. So that, that's what that was about. And now all these years later, you know, 18 years later, I, I'm still talking about the living voice of Christ. And I'm still saying, uh, yes, this is, this is a, a person who, where we, where we see a testimony of, of real lives of those people who'd encountered him. And hopefully we'll develop that same living connection and that the scriptures can be one stage where that happens. Right. You know, as a, as a Pentecostal, of course, hearing that, hearing this idea of of the spirit guiding into truth and speaking, I'm, I'm all there, right? I'm like, yes, this is what I've heard so much growing up in my Pentecostal tradition. What I thought at times it was, you know, displayed, but then at times also there is this uniqueness of using that kind of phrase for a lot of weird stuff. Oh yeah. Right? It's worse and, than you think. <laughs> oh. And and we saw it with past election, we saw it with people prophetically claiming things because the spirit told them whether through dreams or visions or just the spirit telling them. And yet somehow I see your first book and the book that we've been talking about about reading scripture as kind of going hand in hand, almost to say there's more to it than just saying the spirit. And there's more to it than just saying scripture. Oh yeah. That's very good. And in what it suggests to me is the importance of a, of a Christ centered um, sort of relationship to the voice of God. In other mm. words, I think it's in the book of revelation that we read that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so that's meant a couple very practical things in my life. Um, one is a part of my discernment is looking at the words of Jesus in the scriptures, the four gospels, and listening to the voice of Christ in my heart via the spirit. Hmm. Now, so now we've got two Jesuses going. We got the one in my heart and the one on the page. <laughs> and what I'm continually trying to do as an exercise in discernment is see how those are aligned and how they're not aligned. When the voice in my heart and the voice in the book don't sound alike, one of two things could be happening in me. Either the voice of Jesus in my heart um, could just be me on Prozac, <laughs> uh, projecting <laughs> whatever I think Jesus should be like. So I want to be aware that, that the, the Jesus in my heart can be co-opted by my egoistic projections. I have to watch for that. But also, when I'm reading the Gospels, I could also be misreading the, the words of Jesus there through a bad interpretive grid. And so there, right. the problem isn't Jesus in my heart. It's not even the Jesus on the page. It's my interpretive system. So I'm, I'm always comparing the two. And I think that's good quality control. But even better, this, this is the most important thing I've ever done in terms of discernment. And I believe it's largely kept me from being deceived by false prophets, if the people care about that. And that is 
Um, there's a scripture that says that the voice of the Lord is pure like silver refined in the fire seven times. I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a furnace through which to purify everything that is an alleged word from the Lord? Yeah. And I believe I've discovered it. <laughs> and that fire is the Beatitudes. So about more than a decade ago, I memorized and began praying the Beatitudes of Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. That whole thing, I pray those every day. And I installed yeah. them in my heart as a furnace. Now, anytime anybody teaches me something, preaches something, says God told me this and that, uh, including people who are trying to give me wonderful grandiose prophetic words. <laughs> I just load them into the furnace and, you know, not much gets through the first three beatitudes, you know, it's, right. it's gonna, egoism is fried up by poverty of spirit, mourning and meekness. And then you're done. And it's like, example, um, Brad, you need to go get your passport renewed because the Lord's going to give you the nations as your inheritance. It's like, well, actually, <laughs> um, nations, plural. Wow. I'll be the head of several states, apparently. And, uh, and, then, and then I'm like, um, in fact, that was a prophecy about Jesus from Psalm 2, when in fact, half my cul-de-sac doesn't even think I'm a Christian probably, <laughs> you know, so I think we're going to leave aside taking the nations, but, but poverty of spirit would just laugh at that kind of stuff. And hopefully not with too much derision, but it certainly won't land in my heart and any right. kind of politicizing of faith is consumed immediately. So all of these prophecies, by the time you post this, um, you know, the next prophecy about, uh, uh, let's see, what's the date today? It's the 11th here. Uh, by the 13th, you know, we're supposed to uh, have a new president down in your country again. And, oh, um, I haven't heard that one yet. Thus quoth the prophets, you know. And so I, I just call BS not because I know about dates. It's because that has nothing to do with the testimony of Jesus. Right. Right. And I, think, and I think that's too. a really yeah. good – yeah, that's a really good – lens or quadrant or filter or whatever kind of term we want to put there to help help kind of through that now it's to some degree how do we help people learn how to do that right yeah well i'm just saying they need to go start praying the beatitudes every day you can set it on your phone until i did it you know i i just set a noon prayer time mm -hmm. if they just do that they're going to be shocked how good their discernment gets very quickly Hmm. It's quite wonderful. It's a miracle. It's the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's actually a perfect transition to the conversation about your book on heaven, her gates will never be shut, and the larger conversation about salvation. So take us there to the the ways in which God works all of us through those seven furnaces in in what we call judgment. Yeah. Well, I want to begin then by just saying, again, I had a twofold um, uh, audience for that book. And uh, one of the audiences were Christians who were telling me, I can no longer follow Jesus. I'm actually going to renounce my faith because I can't believe in hell as eternal conscious torment. Right. The other group were, were people who were seekers who had not yet 
committed themselves to following the Jesus way. And they said, but they had met him through, let's say, inner healing prayer that we've been doing. And so they'd actually had encounters with Christ, but they're like, but I can't, I can't follow him because I can't believe in eternal conscious torment. So now we had, we had a group of Christians who were going to renounce their faith, a group of seekers who couldn't pick up the faith, both over this deal killer. So I just said, well, we better go double check whether it's actually a deal killer. Right. And so in that book, I went through every scripture I could find on divine judgment and um, including including the prospects of the afterlife, the different words that were used for for that and and uh, descriptions. And so what I discovered there was such a range of images and criteria for final judgment that I realized this is, it's really difficult to harmonize. Mm. It humbles you. And I saw that um, there were, were groups across Christian history that believed in what I call infernalism. That's eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire, separation from God, whatever that looks like. And they had, they had pet scriptures. And then there were my conditionalist friends um, also called in there's different versions of that conditional immortality or annihilationism. But in, in their case, um, they had pet scriptures that said, well, look at everybody is going to, you know, accountable for their decision. If, if you say yes to Jesus, you go to heaven. If you say no, you go into non-being, at least you're not tortured forever. Right. And this is where John Stott eventually ended up. Um, uh, believing that, and he made space. This is about 1989. The most respected evangelical in the UK for sure. But um, I, uh, he came out as saying that I can no longer believe in the justice of eternal conscious torment. And so he made it palatable for evangelicals even um, to become annihilationists. And, and yeah, like, you, you mean you mean I won't go to hell if I believe this? <laughs> and and it seemed to be he he gave us permission. And then I also saw um, my friends who were, you know, various types of universal salvation. Um, and they had, they had sort of their favorite scriptures, and they actually had a lot of them. I wrote 32 of them down, but uh, other friends tell me I'm missing a lot. Um, but here was the thing is my approach to it was if I, if I take a hard stand on one of these, what will I do with those other texts? Right. I'm not able to harmonize them easily. Um, where I where I came out in that book was uh, because of that difficulty, I I chose what I called the humility of hope. Um, that I cannot presume that all will be saved or that any will be damned, but I put my hope in the Lord Jesus, who's not willing that any would perish, and who said, "I will draw all people to myself." So my hope's not in a doctrine, then it's in the person. But it's also that kind of hopeful inclusivism. That's the term I used. You see it on others like Callistus Ware or Hans von Balthasar. But Hansers von Balthasar. But 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 that can get mistaken. The hope can get mistaken for wishful thinking or doubt. Right. And so I've always <laughs> said this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You know, it's an objective hope in a living person. And so to, to clarify that now, I, I would say, well, here's, here's where I came out. 
um, that I do believe these scriptures can be harmonized simply by putting them into a consecutive order. And I, I think David Bentley Hart's done this as well. In other words, all the judgment passages count, but they're second last, they're penultimate. They're about the right. coming age. And then after that, mercy triumphs over judgment. There is the end of the ages when God is all in all, and every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That doesn't skip. You don't skip judgment then. But on the other hand, then you realize judgment must be restorative rather than retributive. It can't just be punishment forever because you're evil. It right. has to be some kind of refiner's fire or launderer's soap. Why don't, why don't we get obsessed with the soap imagery? We're like so into fire. It's like, listen here, if you don't repent, God is going to put you in a washing machine and he's going to get every last stain out of that wedding dress. I think like there's we, some trauma for me as a kid getting my mouth washed out with soap. I don't know if anyone else ever had that, but. Yeah, well, I, and I think, I think that, that there are dire warnings about judgment and that judgment will be traumatic for those who've given their lives to resisting love. Uh, I see this with a, uh, living addicts now where I, if I love them unconditionally, some of them will relapse because love is, it's too painful for them. If connected to their addiction is a, mm -hmm. a need for self punishment. Well, what are they going to do when they're faced with nothing but love? And what will you do if we face Christ in that sense and you can't run from him? So the fire of love is, is, is it's a scary thing, but get used to standing in it now and it will be glorious. You know? Right. So right. That's one way to think about it. That's, I think, a faithful to George MacDonald's vision, to Gregory of Nice's vision, that, that this, it's the Isaac of Syria, that it's the fire of love. And this fire will cleanse us and prepare us for an eternity with love. So, so what would you say that to the person right then? <laughs> I like it. Yes. Okay. Sign me what, up. what do you say to the person then that, you know, just goes, well, Jesus says in Matthew, fire and brimstone, right? Like, I mean, I heard you, right? Yes, we can read it consecutively. We can, we can think about it in terms of a penultimate, you know, uh, restoration versus just judgment, but I can just hear in the back of my mind, you know, someone arguing back and just going, yeah, but Jesus said, and just kind of pointing out, picking still based on what you said, still picking out the one verse, how would you like walk someone through saying, no, here's what we have to do again. Here's that hermeneutic. Here's that reading, you know, the way to read scripture that is going to fundamentally change how you can perceive it. And maybe even open you up to the reality that you can think of it a different way without losing your salvation or putting yourself in danger of that very thing that you want to hold on to so tightly. Yeah, there's so many good approaches to addressing that. I'll see what I can pull off right now. Um, let's say with Matthew 25, the judgment of sheep and goats, it's a it's so problematic. We're like, well, you know, so people want this to be about eternal conscious torment or eternal punishment somehow uh, by way of exclusion. Okay, um, so we're going to take it literally. Well, first of all, then people don't need to worry. It's about sheep and goats, not people. Right. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. It is a parable then. Is that right? <laughs> it's a parable about sheep and goats. Um, yeah. And the sheep and goats do represent somehow the righteous and the wicked. But now we've got a new problem. 
what's the criteria for the judgment? It's not faith in Jesus Christ. What do you want to do with mm. that? Yeah. In fact, it's not even righteous acts versus wicked acts. The entire criteria is sins of omission for marginalized people. Okay, mm. I'll, I'll play that. I was with the Mennonites long enough. I can do that. Yes, then. Um, tell me, um, how many homeless people did you pass this week? Um, if you didn't feed them, you're probably a goat. And so the right. early church began to see this problem very early. And they're like, on any given day, I could be a sheep or a goat. And what if the word of the Lord in that passage is about is about um, the sword of the word dividing the sheep and goats in your own heart? And, and including like, do not dare presume you're a sheep because it's because sheep and goats alike get surprised in that passage, you know? Mm, yeah. And so, and then what's the outcome? So that's a whole nother discussion where, where we have these fantastic Greek words um, that we've translated eternal punishment when in fact it's a, about the coming age and it's about correction. At least that's one way to read it. So it's, it's this debatable, mysterious passage and I don't diminish the fact that there's a dire warning here, but what's the agenda? It's not to teach us the nature of the afterlife. Right. The agenda is to say, who are the hungry people, the naked people, the sick people, the imprisoned people in your city? Visiting them, helping them, and serving them is how you encounter Christ now. And this is of ultimate importance somehow. Okay, maybe penultimate importance. But um, so that's that's one example of a sort of a gotcha passage where I'm like, eh. other ones are like the rich man in Lazarus, where you've got this rich man in a fiery torment, and he's in a he's he's in a place that um, there's a chasm no one can cross or ever come back from. Right. And he wants a drink of water, <laughs> as if that would help you. As if you could talk to Abraham. As if, <laughs> oh, wait, it's a parable. Okay. But as Benedict XVI says, the punchline of that parable is Christ's descent into Hades, where he crosses the uncrossable chasm. He comes back from the place no one can come back from. And when he does, according to Paul in Ephesians, he leads a parade of captives behind him. And he's emptying the place. So, okay. So that's, Jesus said, talks about that. And then I'll just say one more. I love Mark 9. So Mark, Mark 9, he's, Jesus is dealing with his imagery where, of Gehenna, the fiery judgment. And he's warning, we'll call them church people for <laughs> try to, to translate. Because that's where you do it. Right. Um, there's never this warning to unbelievers that they're going to go to hell. <laughs> it's, it's pointing at these church people and saying, okay, well, if, you're right, if your eye causes you to stumble, you better cut it out then. If your hand causes you to stumble, you better cut it off then because it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and one hand than into the fires of Gehenna with both, right? But he doesn't stop there. He completely subverts the whole imagery. The next thing he says is this, for, so he's riffing off that, for you will all be salted with fire. So now it's not a us-them thing everyone's going to be salted with right second he says but salt is good okay so this isn't just about eternal condemnation this is about something good for us a fire 
a salting of fire that is restorative, reparative. And then on top of that, he says, therefore, have make sure you have salt in yourself. Oh, so I can do it huh. on purpose. Yeah. And I can do it on purpose now. And where do I do it on purpose now? Inside of me. Make sure this salt, the salting of fire is in you now because we're all going to pass through this good salting. Of, and, huh. and you just go, okay, this is going to take a lot more meditation. It was, <laughs> it was actually one of those cases where I ran into this passage and I'm like, I hate these words. They mm. don't align with the Jesus in my heart. And I'm going to pray about them and meditate them until they do. And now it's one of my favorite passages. And it's like after about a year of that. Right. Um, undergoing it. And saying, yeah, I'm, I just wanted to use that passage to send wicked people off to Gehenna. Now I have to use it to say, what needs to be burned up in me today? So these are all Jesus things, but they're not like, they're not in unison, are they? It's different imagery. What I, what I love both about what you just said, connecting it back to your most recent book is that there is, in the way that you talk about approaching scripture and the way that you talk about reading it and even hearing from God and putting it through some kind of lens, it's always in a transformative but somewhat long-range view as well. Um, and and I think that is is very different from the way that we often approach scripture, which very much is, I'm going to go, I'm going to read it today, I'm going to get what I need for today, and I'm done. I've got it now. I've kind of grasped it. But I think it's it's been multiple times now since our conversation that you've talked about this kind of like process of change in engaging with scripture and engaging with the capital W word of God with Jesus, right? And hearing the spirit that it took time, whether it's reading the Beatitudes or praying to be to be made to be like Christ. And then all of a sudden this passage becomes one of love rather than disgust or yeah. fear, right? And Maybe that's just me pontificating on what you're saying and going, but isn't that just the way, right? Yeah. If I go to scripture and it just tells me today what I need for today and I walk away and go, that's great. I'm good to go. It's not really done much in me and I've not really heard the word of God or learned about the word of God. I've just taken myself and put it into the text and I'm okay now. Sure. In a sense, like studied it in order to avoid it. <laughs> right. Um, and one of the one of the ways we can shift there is by praying scripture. And so, you know, in the Orthodox Church, we pray a lot of scripture. I pray these six psalms every week. Um, and one of those psalms, unfortunately, includes this idea of uh, David calling for his enemies' babies to be dashed on the stones, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, it's one of these toxic texts. Well, what do you do if you're expected to pray that every Sunday? Right. I'll tell you what happened to me. I started seeing people's faces as I prayed it. And the Lord was, I'm like, I don't, why are these faces coming to mind? It's because I had malice in my heart. Mm. I don't want their babies to be dashed on the stones. Well, then, then I guess you better surrender that malice. And then it got worse when my my dear son and his wife went through a divorce and and uh, they're doing really well now. But at first I was so angry and I wasn't going to get to see my granddaughter again. And the Lord spoke to me and I'll say it as, as clearly as any Pentecostal would. The word of the Lord came <laughs> to me and say, what will you do when 
the child of your enemy is your own granddaughter. Hmm. And I'm like, Lord, have mercy. And, and it really was a call to repentance. And so here, instead of seeing it as, oh, here's a toxic text we need to get rid of and explain away. It's like, no, praying it until it exposed the thing in me that needed that big index finger to poke at. And right. heal me, heal me until I really desperately went from murderous to desiring mercy for my daughter-in-law. And we just love her to bits now. And there's been beautiful reconciliation. But my goodness, the journey to get there, did that took a year. Yeah. And it was hard. Even to see it was hard. And then to, and then... And then to do something with that. So that'd be one example. If we pray the scriptures, I think it really helps. Yeah. Brad, I know you've got to go. We've had a great conversation. I think it's hopefully been beautiful and helpful to a lot of our listeners who are going through some of those same questions kind of in their own everyday Christian life or those who are coming to this podcast that are just trying to understand why Christians sometimes believe weird things and we do right and we've got to kind of process through those so i appreciate you taking the time um i know we've talked about your books but if you just kind of want to shout them out again you know if you were to say hey people who have never read me before here's a good order to read my books or just dive right into the new one let it let the listeners know yeah, they might be interested in what I wrote in Can You Hear Me all those years ago, because it is about how normal people can hear the voice of God in a myriad of ways and start counting it as real. And it'll make your your um, encounters with Christ more personal, I think. And then this latest round is a trilogy. So a more Christ-like God, a more Christ-like word, and a more Christ-like way. And all of that's available wherever you order books. So yeah, thanks for letting me do the promo for that. And then of course, Chris mentioned her gates will never be shut. And that's, that's also available in stores and online. I'm still just stuck with, and I wish we had more time. And I know we don't the 32 passages that you came up with, uh, that you found in your research that really spoke to that, um, kind of more, I don't want to say universalism, but universal reconciliation, right. And how there's more of those, but maybe we'll save that for another time and go through some of those passages together. Yeah, you know, I probably even listed them online somewhere. In fact, if you were to uh, Google 32 scriptures that dare us to hope and then Jersak, you'll find it. Oh, there we go. For me and for everyone else. I really appreciate that. Brad, thanks so much for coming yeah, on. Brad. It's been uh, a pleasure and a joy. Learned so much from you. Um, yeah, thanks so much for doing it with us. Thank you, Thanks Brad. for having me, guys. More to come. Ciao. All right. Chris and I have to deal with something here. We just had a, a great and fantastic podcast that we recorded. It was lovely, at least I guess from my perspective. But somewhere along the lines, we got into this argument and Chris and I don't argue very often. Typically, we kind of like, I don't know, Chris, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like more often than not, when we have a conversation, we almost have a similar thought process on a lot of things. Sure. I think so. Yeah. Uh, which for someone except who's for this movie, apparently. Yeah. Except for this movie. And then somehow, and even when we disagree, we're like, yeah, but I can see what you're saying. Like that makes sense. I, I get it. But this time I don't see what you're saying. The green Knight is a terrible movie. Uh, 
on many different levels. We try to talk a little bit about art and our different perspective on art. Now, you're the real artist. I'm the fake artist and that I do music. You'd actually do art, art. Um, but no, this is, yeah, this is set us up for this because this is actually a really great, yeah. a great thing to disagree about. So Chris and I, we both watched The Green Knight. Saw it pretty early on. And I think we watched it opening night, me and my wife. Uh, I, I think you guys watched it pretty early on. And opening night for me too. So we were oh. probably watching it at the same time. Different Look parts. at that. We just knew that we both needed to see this movie, right? Like we both went into this movie going, this is, this is going to be creative. It's going to have creative license. It's going to, it's going to do a lot of different things, both somewhat from, I mean, I'm somewhat familiar with the actual kind of story of the green Knight. You're much more familiar. And I walk out, my wife and I walk out and we just were like, that was the biggest waste of a couple hours of our life. And you clearly walked out and said, this was the most fantastic thing. Not would, maybe not ever, but close. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know that it's in my greatest movies of all time, but I love the experience. Like, and I, I came out of it thrilled. Like I, I loved, I loved every second of it. Now I think maybe Chris, we'll start here. Why don't you kind of give, and this will be the quote unquote spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen it now, I mean, it's been out for a couple months by the time this podcast is coming out. Uh, maybe give a quick rundown and then we'll talk about that thing that we talked about in the podcast where I said art needed to have a purpose and you were like, it doesn't need to have a purpose. And that's, I think that's the biggest hinge here on why we, we both disagree well, about right. this movie. Yeah. Because I think it might be interesting to get at, do we disagree about the movie or do we disagree about like what a movie should do or art in general? Like, yeah, that, that may be a secondary yeah. Well, start by giving an overview because you're, you're, you'd give a much better overview than I would. So it is based on a, an old poem about, it's an, a part of the Arthurian legend literature, right? The King Arthur and his knightly courts. And this particular story is about Gawain or Darwin. His name gets pronounced in different ways depending on whether you're using like Oklahoma English or <laughs> some technical way or British English or whatever. So I'll just call him Gawain. Although in the movie it's Darwin and there are at least two other pronunciations you'll hear. <laughs> for, for right. his name. But I'm going to say Gawain. So in, in it's a story about King Arthur. It's a Christmas time. And this is true of the movie and the poem because the movie is of course a kind of interpretation of the poem. We don't actually know who the poet was. Hmm. It's a famous poem, but we don't. Yeah. There's agreement about like kind of where it came from theories, but nobody knows for sure. So in the poem, King Arthur is having the Christmas lunch, more or less a Christmas feast. And suddenly there's a knock at the door and there's this giant green man on a horse that's also green. And once he wants to play a game with the knights, and it's essentially a beheading game. And believe it or not, those who are not familiar with this literature, it's actually a trope in medieval literature uh, that the idea of a beheading game that plays out in different ways. Huh. So this poem picks up on that. And what the, the green man says is that Arthur can pick anyone, any Arthur himself or any one of his knights can strike whatever blow they want against the knight 
on the condition that one year later, the knight can return the blow. Right. Right. And of course, what happens is in the movie, it's set up so that Gawain is the nephew of Arthur and has not proven himself. Like there's a scene in the movie where Arthur says to him before the green knight shows up, he says to Gawain, you know, tell me about, tell me a story about your life. And he's like, I have no story. There's yeah. nothing happening. Right. And, and that's definitely the impression you get from the first couple of scenes, you know, that he's a kind of troublemaking spoiled kid, the nephew of the King. And suddenly he realizes his opportunity, right. To make a name for himself, to have an adventure. And so he beheads the knight in one stroke and then the knight, the green knight, reaches down, picks up his head, and the beheaded head, the, the severed head, speaks and says, you know, I'll see you in a year. Right? And that's how the movie starts. Right. And the poem the, the same way. And, of course, that, that intervening year, there's not much that happens. We kind of jump from that, not exactly, but more or less, we jump from that kind of opening surprise to him going setting out on his quest to prove his honor. Yep. And I don't want to spoil too much um, because it really is. There, there are surprises, especially on the back half of the movie, but I think, I think you set it up pretty well, but I think that's, that's probably enough to see. He goes on his quest. He meets with a bunch of strange things along the way. Strange people he ends up living in this castle for a little while with a, a man who's much too friendly and a wife who's much too friendly. And, and then finally comes face to face with the green guy at the yep. end. So that, that's the big story arc. And I think, you know, my perception as I'm watching this, right. Bought in, ready to go. And, you know, for those who are going to watch it, you know, it, it's, it's one of those kind of tales where, you know, you just, you keep going to new characters, right? Uh, you got the main character and you keep jumping to new characters almost with kind of leaving the last one behind and, and they're done for, right? Like we're not going to think about them again, you know, like these people in the castle, right? You're going to go there, you're going to see them, you're going to have some weird things happen and you're on to the next and then that, that one's gone, you know? Yeah. Um, what I left with in that movie was that by the time the final scene played out and by the time we're walking out, uh, I was left with the impression of two things. One, I wasn't entertained. I know that sounds strange, but at the end of the movie, I, I didn't have this feeling of what, what you would get with the movie entertainment. I didn't go, that was an enjoyable two hours of my life. Yeah. If anything, I left with, well, that was just a painful two hours of my life that I, 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 as much as I try to be engaged and I can watch some pretty terrible movies, <laughs> I kept looking at my watch going, okay, I'm ready to go. Like, and my wife felt the same. I think halfway through the movie, my wife turned to me and she's like, are you sure we can't sneak into another movie right now? Like, can we just, the one next to us was, was really loud, way too loud for some reason in the movie theater. She's like, yeah. that one sounds at least more exciting or at least more entertaining right now. And I'm like, no, we've got to finish this. We've got to do it. But I left without that. And then I left without any sense one way or the other of movement in my own life 
right? There was no, you know, you can watch the dumbest. I'm, I'm going to use these as like a really dumb example, like Fast and Furious movies. Mm-hmm. You can leave those movies and go, I love family. I love friends. I love like, there's something about, I want to be a part of this group. I want, you know, an adventure. I want, I moved towards something, whether it's good or bad, I moved towards something. And for me watching this movie, not having either experience of either entertainment or movement towards something without the context of more about the create creative interpretation about what it meant for people, about kind of knowing the poem deeply and kind of going, ah, this is this, and this helps me with some kind of hermeneutic or some kind of meaning making out of the movie. I left and I just went, I I know there's something there. Like I know there's some good meaning making that can happen from this movie, but I don't even care to look into it. And I kind of just want to forget it. (laughs) And for me that goes, then that's not good art. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But see, I think that, that assumes, and, and I think this this probably is where we disagree, and, and it's not really about the movie, I, I don't think. I mean, we might disagree about the movie too, but I think the real point of disagreement is, does art need to be accessible for everyone? Right. And I, I don't I, think it does. Right? I think that it's it's... That's part of the... If you want to do something like that, which David Lowry, the filmmaker, obviously... He said that he's wanted to make a movie of this story for a long, long time. Yeah. Like, it's obviously something, it was kind of a an intimate project for him about a poem. It's a pretty, I mean, somewhat well-known, but it's not, it's not famous. And, I mean, in, you know, people who study Middle English know it really well. Right. But, I mean, if, if, if you're not a lit major, if you're not, you know, an Arthurian buff, you probably don't know much about this poem, even if you do know about Gawain, the knight, or if you know about Arthur in general. Right. And so I think if, I think an artist should feel perfectly fine with do what you want to do. And, but no, it's not going to translate to some kind of huge box office success. Right. Wide appeal. But if you can get people to pay you money to do what you want to do, <laughs> and then do, do it. it. I mean, so I, I think it's a it's a movie or it's a it's it's a story for a small group of people, right? And maybe there there is something to be said about the responsibility of the production company to make it clear mm-hmm. up front. Hey, don't come to this movie if this is not your thing. Like maybe right. they, maybe they packaged it in a way that made it seem pop when it's not really i, I don't know yeah. i mean we could we could have a disagreement about like what's the production company's responsibility in terms of truth and advertising or whatever right right but yeah I, I would stand by you know artists should make what they think they need to make and it doesn't need to translate to everybody to be good and and i would actually so uh dang it now we're gonna agree so i do agree like i i, I absolutely agree with you that i don't think art translates to everyone and maybe that is maybe as we're boiling it down we're coming to this kind of consensus place because i'm thinking there's a lot of great works of art that don't connect with people i do connect with large groups of people right uh there are academic texts that uh that i read and and am just completely 
in that kind of definition of art, I read it and I go, I moved, right? And very few people are going to read an academic text and go, this is everything, right? Like this can be a work of art, right? That's right. But I do think maybe there is something to that idea of that truth in advertisement. And it definitely did have a pop. I mean, if you watch the trailer, it's a pop trailer. No, I think that's right. And I think that's you know? the Like it definitely, and that opening scene, you know, where his skull lights on fire. Right. Like, like that's essentially like, it's got the feel of a really cool music video. Hmm. It's that kind of, that's how yeah. it starts. Like that's, and then, and then it shifts into an entirely different mode. And so, I, I mean, I, I can totally get people thinking they were being led to one kind of movie and it turned out to be something else. Well, it's like, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of really, yeah, one of my favorite movies is super old. It's called The Seventh Seal. Yeah, I know it. Which, I know it well. yeah. Right, which has a similar kind of vein of of existence right you're going from character to character yep. right it's, well they're both they're both mythic now, like right. in fact part of what lowry's doing in this movie is he's quoting a lot of other movies and he's drawing right. on i don't know if there's a direct reference to the seventh seal but it is that kind of um he is showing homage to that tradition yeah no, I, I think very much. Even when I, even when we walked out, I, I, I literally looked at Chris and I said, I, I, "It feels like it's almost like a modern Seventh Seal, but about a different story and kind of uh, conversation." And that may be unfair to say of what he's doing, but it's what it felt like. Well, that's right. But going into the Seventh Seal, it's this. I think I think fifties, if I'm not mistaken, uh, black and white film. So it's like you know, if anyone watches a lot of movies, it's in the Criterion Collection, like type of. Uh, that's, Movie. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, was the actor. But when you get into it, you get into it knowing, like, yes, this is, yeah, this is heavy. This is it's going to be thoughtful. I'm getting into this movie where I'm, I'm being led on a journey of thoughtfulness, yeah. and I just I I still didn't get that even from the Green Knight because maybe really? maybe that's my own failure in this in the sense uh, sense of I'm going in I'm going into this Arthurian legend I'm going into this this mythic this mythic but also an, an epic right also a quest also yeah, a kind cool. of a movement and the entire time I was just kind of like where is this movie where is yeah, it so I, on the on the like the story itself I think you do have to what you kind of have to know you have to have a pretty I don't know about deep, but somewhat deep knowledge of what the poem is doing to start to recognize how the movie is interpreting that. Yeah. And there's so much that the the movie requires a lot of, it expects a lot of you before the movie even starts. And then Mm -hmm. once it starts, it's expecting a lot of you in terms of being able to follow what's happening. And I, I actually think, that's one of the things I like about it, even though, you know, I'm in that you know, small group of people that I think I knew what I was getting into going into it. Yeah. Both because I've seen Lowry's other films and because I knew the poem and because I wanted it to be that, like I actually was hoping it would go that way. Right. Yeah. Well, but, I, th- I think there's other filmmakers who can take you down that same journey but do it in a way that maybe I don't want to say palatable because like, I, I think that's the wrong word, but more user friendly down that, you know, like taking people down the journey 
to where there is depth for those who know it. And then there is, I don't want to say handholding, but you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think, and I think there is a way to do that. Well, that's still artful. I like, I yeah. don't, I'm not arguing for some kind of super highbrow theory of art here that the proof of the worth of the art is how few people get it. That's not right. But I do want to say that there can be works of art that aren't, they just don't translate. And that's yeah. okay. Like yeah. that's okay for, on their own terms. But the cost of that is they don't translate to a lot. Right. And so if that's what you want to do as a filmmaker, great. No, I, I don't, I don't think there's a problem with it as long as you're not trying to do that other thing. Right. And as, as a medium of movies, especially coming out of COVID trying to draw people back to a movie theater, I just think it's the wrong movie to do that with. Uh, and that's a whole other kind of conversation. That's more about the, the film industry in general, but it's not the kind of movie to bring people back into movies or theaters or, you know, engagement. And I do think it's actually really tough to hold both hands well, right? This kind of really deep, deep well of art that also on one hand, it kind of really can be, I don't want to say endless, but, you know, just constant re-engagement with the art. And then there's this, you know, holding this, holding the other hand of, being able to bring people into that art and have them again, make some good meaning out of it, even if it's very base level meaning um, that they may walk away and go, you know what? I, there's probably more to that, but I'm really satisfied with, with what I got and I, I probably won't go back. You know, yeah, so this, this, this is really, I mean, we're going to have to stop, but I mean, I think I, I do, I want to be able to affirm like the, Fab Five movies, there's a place for that. And if, if you want to go watch that in the theater, great. Then I think there are people like Christopher Nolan, yeah. kind of pretty, pretty intelligent, somewhat demanding films, at least conceptually, mm-hmm. but are also blockbusters, right? I mean, right. so you got that, that kind of range. And I think, you know, we don't have to go through a bunch of different filmmakers who do that, but that's, it's possible to do that. And right. like Terrence Malick, I think sometimes has done that, like with a movie like Tree of Life. Yep, I was going to bring that one up. Yeah, appeal, and he did. He's done other films that that are much more niche and so on. But I guess I just want to say I don't think the artist has a moral responsibility to be accessible. Hmm. I think if they want to do that, that's all well and good. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. But right. I don't. I think if an artist wanted to write a poem or make a movie that nobody would get, I don't think that's in some way irresponsible. Oh, right. I don't, I don't think so either. So I think what, you know, for Lowry to make this movie on his own terms, like the way he, and that's part of the reason, you know, a 24 did it. Like they're known for like letting Mm -hmm. do what they want to do. And, and from what I understand, he made this movie and then dramatically altered it in edits huh. because he didn't like what he had made. Right. I don't know the full story there. I've just heard a little bit about that. From yeah. The viewers. So it'd be interesting to see if, did he set out to make a kind of popular access to the Arthurian Arthurian story and then feel like, no, 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 I want to tell the story. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. that, yeah. but I think the, 
to connect it back to themes that come up in our podcast all the time, I think there is like something in evangelical spirituality and American sensibilities that is offended when something is done, they don't get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we should be like, I think it'd yeah. be perfectly fine. It's like, listen, I just spent 30 bucks on that. I wish I hadn't done it, but I don't think you should be offended at the artist. Like it should be right. Like, you know, if you wanted to be offended at the producers of the film for not telling you better what you're getting into, I think that's a different conversation. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that was kind of in the attitude where I even said to my wife, I know there's something more. I know there's something deep. I know there's a well here that. Yeah. that could be explored. It's not what we came for. And I also just am not bought in enough to, to look. And so for me, then the experience, and maybe it's the experience and not the art becomes right. a wasted experience or a frustrating experience because I was hoping for something other than, Absolutely. right? So, cause I'm with you. I think, I think we can be in agreement in that, that artists can do what artists do. I think, I think there is definitely a responsibility for maybe in this instance, I wouldn't say the artists themselves, but those produ- uh, producing and promoting uh, that art, right? And how they actually are I agree. promoting what it's supposed to be. Um, and yeah, we can we can be happy. Because again, I think there's a lot of films that I just am never going to enjoy that my wife loves because she's more of a movie buff than I am. And she loves really artsy films and I can... And I like artsy films sometimes, but I can also You just enjoy. want to know that's what you're getting into. I, exactly. I think, I think this is one of those films that you need to have ha- had a few classes, uh, read a few books, had some conversations before you see it, mm-hmm. or it to be an entertaining experience. Yeah. Or you have to, like, so one of the things that I we haven't talked about at all is I think the the cinematography of the film, like the look of the film was astounding. Oh, I agree. I think that was maybe beautiful. If, maybe if you're a photographer or you're a cinematographer, you could still have a great experience, even if you don't have any of the like literary connection, just because right. of filmmaking. But regardless, there's got to be something, like the film assumes that you're going to have some expertise in order to appreciate what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, whether that's literary expertise or or, you know, whatever the, your discipline. Right. Um, so one of the things that tells us, I think, is how we're used to movies that don't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the cultural moment that, that we're in. So anyway, like, I think that's taking us too far afield, but I, I think that's one of the things this conversation raises is like, what does ministry, what does theology look like? under those pressures, right? When you have the pressure to, to talk in ways that make sense to a lot of people. Yeah. Like you end up, everybody ends up sounding the same. That's why our movies, like they all turn. I mean, that's why we get nine fast and furious movies dozens of the same right. movie right? right over and over again. And I, I, I hate that at the end of the day, even though I want there to be room for that. Gosh, I mean, at, at some point, do something else. Right. And so that's why just the contrarian part of me says, thank God for a movie that is good on its own. Terms. <laughs> like, right. That there's hope. I think that artists can still do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm there with you. I, I'm glad it exists. I'm still not glad I watched it. 
right? That you uh, I'm glad it exists. And I think it does kind of show that dichotomy of even the church world yeah. um, of the, of the sense that me as someone who might be a bit more, not to self-aggrandize, but knowledgeable in theological things because I've spent my life doing it and teaching it and engaging with it and degrees and all the like that I can go to a church and just really can't stand it because I just hear these cliche phrases used a lot that I'm going, that means nothing that is not doing anything that holds no weight that holds no value. And then I can go to a church that's really, really thoughtful and really deep. And there's like 10 people in the room because, because, and I think, I think there's something, you know, a parallel, like you said, that maybe we can explore at a later time, this kind of like parallel of art and entertainment to kind of the church and theology that our culture is kind of moving in. Uh, and again, a reason why church attendance is below 50%. And another one of the reasons, right? I mean, that's very much, you know, who knows what the exact reasons are, but there's a lot to it. That's a factor for sure, I think. Um, hey, Chris, glad we disagreed. Glad we came back to agreeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are going to be like, man, those guys, they just... They just never disagree, but we do. We do. Yeah, and, and we're we'll try to seek out more disagreements. We'll make it a commitment. We'll find the places that we want to uh wrangle each other's necks because of. Uh we'll get there. Um I th- that may be pretty hard because even I just respect you enough that anything you're like, Yeah, Chris, I disagree, but you're you, so that's fine. Like <laughs> take we'll, it. We'll keep it yeah, PG. We're not gonna let anything get too ugly. Mm. I just now have this like vision of it happening and being like, when it does happen, it's going to be the biggest atomic explosion. Uh, Anyways, hey, thanks so much. And we'll be back here uh, soon for everyone else.